Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Uh, Gabraham Lincoln. <laughs> Not really. It's really Gabe Dowrick, isn't it? I guess so. <laughs> I guess you're right. Because every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today we'll be reviewing two twin movies that reinvented horror legends as 19th century gothic superheroes with steampunk technology. It's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen versus Van Helsing. Let the bloodletting begin. So as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and our flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 11th of July, 2003, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. In an alternate Victorian age world, a group of famous contemporary fantasy, science fiction and adventure characters team up on a secret mission. So Gabe, did you originally catch The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I might just refer to as The League from now on, when it was released at the cinema? And how amazing was that experience? Um, Okay, I'll refer to it as uh, Extraordinary Gentlemen. You call it The League, and I'll call it Extraordinary Gentlemen. Is there a particular reason why we're nitpicking about the abbreviation? (laughs) No, just to make it confusing. Um, Where was I when I saw this? I don't think I saw this at the movies. I I reckon I must have watched this on cable TV in the mid-2000s, just a whole bunch of times back before, you know, you could, like, actually stream, (laughs) like, select a streamable movie and you just sometimes had to put up with whatever was on and this was on a lot and I probably watched it a fair whack. Um, Never enjoyed it, but I watched it a lot. Yeah, I didn't see this film at the cinema. It's one of those curiosities at the time that I was aware of, but just never got round to it. The reviews were savage and I just thought, what's the point? Like the characters and the pitch didn't interest me. So I watched it exclusively for this podcast. So all comments will be first impressions review. Wow, wait, wait. So you didn't even see it at all in the mid-2000s? No, not at all. What? Really? Their reviews were so bad, I avoided it. Yeah, but... I mean, it's like Sean Connery's last movie. It's Stephen Norrington's movie after the movie he made after Blade. I mean, there was a lot just as a curiosity. I'm surprised you didn't see it at all, even like bits of it. The characters just didn't interest me at all. Like The idea of Tom Sawyer appearing just to me just seemed so stupid. I'm not a fan of steep, steampunk technology at all. Um, <laughs> I guess when it's done well, it can really work, but I must have been scarred from seeing... Will Smith in Wild Wild West a few years beforehand, which was also another Hollywood version of steampunk technology. It just also had a poster that really bugged me. Did this thing where it abbreviated the title to just the letters X, no, LXG, I think, like with oh, some yeah. sort of superhero logo. That just really annoyed me. And interestingly, I like the idea of taking historical characters or fictional characters and reinvent them in a different way. And we'll get to that with Van Helsing as well. But for some reason, these particular characters did nothing for me. I hadn't heard of any of them. I mean, like- Wait, what do you mean, any of them? Well, I had heard of some. You'd heard of Dorian Gray? You know what? I actually hadn't heard of Dorian. Well, I knew of Dorian Gray as a name, but no idea of the character. Tom Sawyer- I had heard of, obviously, as a fictional character, but not in the context of these kind of uh, 
superhero type characters. But what about Alan Quatermain? Yeah, I'd heard of him as like a poor man's Harrison Ford from- <laughs> Poor man's Harrison Ford. You know, Indi- Indiana Jones. Sure, sure. Yeah, right. Um, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Why don't we just jump to uh, our- just incredible memory of first seeing Van Helsing. I'm more interested in your incredible memory of not having heard of any of these major literary characters, but, hey, sure. We'll circle back to that. We'll circle back to that. On the 7th of May, 2004, Van Helsing was released. Here's the synopsis from IMDb. The notorious monster hunter Van Helsing is sent to Transylvania to stop Count Dracula, who is using Dr. Frankenstein's research and a werewolf for some sinister purpose. By the way, that doesn't sound like the synopsis on the back of the DVD cover. That sounds like one of those synopses written by some sort of fan that somehow has risen to the top on the IMDb pool. For, for some sinister purpose. What is it? That's no, just some purpose. <laughs> we, don't want, we don't want to get into it here, but, but no, it's sinister. <laughs> uh, spoilers. That's right. Uh, walk me through when and how you first watched Van Helsing. I don't think I saw this one at the movies either. And I think exactly the same. I must have watched this just a bunch of times or watched parts of it a bunch of times. I must have sat through the whole thing at least once. But again, just, you know, you're flicking through TV and you're like, oh, look, here it is, Van Helsing. Let's let's just watch 15 minutes of this and be reminded as to why I don't like this movie. I don't fucking know. Look, yeah, a bunch of times on cable. That's the best I got. I don't really remember any of them. <laughs> and, you know, we should actually add that the best time – well, the best memory of a film isn't always at the cinema. You and I have spoken with great excitement about first seeing a film on a 4 by 3 ratio TV and VHS quality, and that was actually a good thing. Like, it shaped our impression of the film in the 90s, like a Van Damme movie, for example. <laughs> exactly like a Van Damme movie. Well, I actually think I saw Gremlins at a kid's birthday party. Like, oh, I was a kid, I should add. <laughs> I didn't just go to some other kid's birthday party. <laughs> ah, yes, I watched it. My face pressed up against the window. <laughs> but no, you're right. I mean, also, it turns out there was lots and lots of movies even made before we were born. Um, the only way to watch some of those was not at the cinema. Yeah, totally. So they can actually be really formative experiences. Um, like I actually recall the pepperoni pizza when I watched Gremlins because it was the excitement of the takeaway meal, the uh, – the friends around you, it was scary, it was dark, you're young, your memories and dulled by alcohol, and so you actually remember these things. That's true. So that can actually be uh, as much of an impression as seeing at the cinema. Absolutely, absolutely. And look, if people are interested in that, you Ben, you do have the Pepperoni Pizza podcast <laughs> where you talk about your fond memories of pizzas you've eaten. <laughs> Check that out in all the usual spots. That's on Ben's Patreon that's right. I call it the uh, pizza rewatchables. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I myself caught this exclusively for this podcast as well. Wow. And I hadn't seen it for exactly the same reasons. Although to me, the pitch, not the one on IMDb, but the pitch for this, the concept, the high concept of this, um, I think is fantastic. I'm not really a horror guy. Like there are those people out there that love that whole era of, uh, I think it was, was it the Hammer horror years of 1930s British horror characters being brought to life? Yeah, Universal and Hammer, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm not really the target market for that. So I saw this at the time as being something similar to The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. The reviews weren't great. I was going through a phase where I was probably watching many more challenging films like 
mysterious skin and like edgy dramas, independent American films. And this just seemed like a bloated Hollywood movie. But I'm glad I saw it if for no other reason than this podcast. In fact, I must say, I'm glad I'm seeing these movies that I hadn't seen already for this podcast recording, not just this particular episode, but in general, because they're that those films that for some reason just escape you. You know when you meet someone and they never saw Star Wars and they explain it was because just life moved on and there was never the right time and everyone had already seen it, et cetera, et cetera. This film is not Star Wars. Let's make that very clear. It's better than Star Wars. <laughs> it's better than Star Wars. Star Wars is for dorks. <laughs> so in that case, I'm sort of glad I'm ticking off my bucket list in that regard. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, exactly. Anywho, let's jump to a quick history lesson before our combined review. So how do we get here? Let's start with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So Extraordinary Gentlemen was also promoted, as I mentioned earlier, as LXG. And it's actually based on the first volume of volume of a comic book series of the same name by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. You might recognise Alan Moore. He's the guy behind Watchmen, isn't he? Yeah, and isn't he like a notorious um, recluse? Satanist? Oh, maybe Satanist, a- anarchist perhaps. But he he's very anti-anything he's made being adapted, right? Very anti and very vocal about it. Yeah, good on him. So this film was based on a comic book property um, and it was directed, as you mentioned, by Stephen Norrington, who is a British director who had made Blade. So... You'd say he was probably a good choice on paper, at least, in that he was doing an adaptation of a horror icon. Uh, as for Van Helsing, that actually surprisingly was actually an original idea. It's actually written by the director, Stephen Summers. Now, Stephen Summers had essentially revived horror icons with the first Mummy film in 1999, which was a huge smash. And so I think he was probably given the keys to the kingdom. Like, in making The Mummy, then The Mummy 2, which was called The Mummy Returns, this was his third film after that. You pretty much see his trajectory, can't you, Gabe? Like, he's making horror so hot right now, and you just see the dollar signs flicking past the eyeballs of the studio executives, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it seems like a real no-brainer. The Mummy really lands its sort of style and tone kind of almost pitch perfectly. Um, yeah, like on paper, this should be a, you know, knock it out of the park on paper. Yeah, to me this falls very much within the phrase high concept made famous by Jerry Bruckenheimer and who was his partner again, Gabe? Donathan Simpson. Yes, Don Simpson. And that expression refers to that window of time in the 80s onwards where essentially you capture the entire essence of the film in one sentence. <laughs> Don Simpson died on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a high concept in itself. <laughs> so this film to me, I agree, like as a pitch, it's fantastic. Like let's make Van Helsing a superhero monster catcher, monster hunter, and he's hunting the icons that have littered the Hollywood screen since the 1920s onwards. Genius idea. Execution is something else which we'll get to. So let's get to that. Let's jump to our combined review. So knowing that these films came about ostensibly individually, separately, without any connection to each other, and it was just pure coincidence, let's start with our review of the first one, which came out in 2003, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, otherwise known as LG. No, L-E-G. 
No, L X G. L G G G X. Like X. So, Gabe, did you like L X G? What worked for you, and what didn't float your boat? This this movie was definitely better in my memory, and parts of me wish it had stayed there. Um, I think it's one of those weird movies that starts. Actually, I don't know if this is like some sort of truism of movies, or it's just this movie. I mean, look, it starts kind of interestingly enough for me, but as the movie goes on, it's like time starts stretching. And for every minute you're watching, you know, like it feels like 10 minutes is going by and it gets worse and worse. It's like an exponential curve of boringness as this movie goes on. Um, Weirdly, both of these movies sort of suffer from it. They're movies which have really interesting setups or like you're interested to know how the guy will recruit the characters, who these characters will be, what their superpowers are. But then when they actually get into the sort of the weeds of the mystery itself, oh, God, it becomes a slog. Yeah, the plotting of this film is really odd. Like, I think with this pitch, this film writes itself. Now, I admit it was written and made before Avengers, before Justice League, uh, two films we discussed in our last podcast episode. But to me, it seems pretty obvious the way you do this, right? You start off showing each of the characters in their own worlds, demonstrating their special skills. You then bring them together and it's the idea, isn't it, that perhaps – they wouldn't ordinarily cooperate, but they have to come together because there's a greater threat to the world. And therefore, this unlikely bunch come together. They'd prefer not to, but they do. And therefore, you have a bit of infighting tension and you sort of feel that once they defeat the big bad, they'll disperse and perhaps even go back to hunting or, you know, hating each other. And that this film just misses to me that basic element. Now, I do realise in saying that the film might seem predictable if you followed that pathway. But I'm only referring to the first 20 minutes. Like, after that, the sky's the limit to explore the story as uniquely as you want to as to how they take on this big bad together. But to me, it seems pretty obvious. A diverse group of characters, each with different skills that complement each other, and ideally the weakness of each character is kind of like propped up by the strength of another character. So this villain will be someone who can't really find their weakness because together – in unison, they're stronger. Doesn't that feel like the most obvious way you go about treating this idea? And that way you'd have just out of the gate unique characters who are quite distinct from each other because they have to be to be complementary to each other and potentially five very different skill sets, which therefore would be, on the face of it, pretty interesting on screen, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, and look, I did like the first 20 minutes of this movie. I think there's some weird muddiness in terms of what their skills are, like who fills what role. Like they keep referring to Mina Harker as her skill is science, but isn't her skill vampire? <laughs> like, Yeah, totally. Isn't the guy, for, isn't the the uh, the Sikh bloke, isn't his skill science? He has like a fucking underwater submarine in like 1899. He has- Yeah, that's Nemo. Nemo. Captain Nemo. His skill should be- Science, you know, like Dorian Gray's skill is immortality, but that's the same as vampire. Like, it's like weirdly, the only one who's kind of got a clear, I guess, skill and drawback is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, who has to kind of, you know, fight with his inner self. Like, when should he use his ability because his ability comes at a cost, you know? Um, it's all over. And like, what's Sean Connery's whack? Like, what's his skill? He's just old man. Like, he's a good shooter? I don't know. Well, the first part of the film shows him 
in a fight scene where even though he's about 25, 30 years older than that of the characters, he manages to somehow kung fu with ducks and kicks taking out five different younger people. And then you see his real skill, I suppose, which is being a great sniper where he takes a great long-range shot. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, is his skill leader? Actually, his skill is having a stunt double. Um <laughs> Yeah, maybe, I don't know. It's, it's it's kind of nebulous. His skill is having a dead son. Isn't the template, though, I mean, if you look at this, it came like a decade before Marvel's The Avengers, but a lot of similarities, right? I mean, Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll are clearly the Hulk. Sure. Right? Uh, a guy who's got reasonably ordinary skills but his leadership is probably Chris Evans, Captain America, and Alan Quatermain, played by Sean Connery. I guess you could say Peter Wilson, who plays, what's her name? That vampire chick? Mina. Mina. I guess you could say that Mina and Black Widow are similar. Why? Because they're women? In that they both dress in black. <laughs> I don't know. Look, the, that's the only great- similar. That's, that's my joke because they actually don't have anything in similar. But they're dressed in black and so they kind of like have a dark history. Oh, uh, nice. So I guess you go through and find these various elements. But like, like they don't appear to have any skills. And the fact that Dorian Gray... And um, Peter Wilson have identical skills is is kind of silly. I mean, his is a reveal, but if you're going to keep his secret for so long, at least make the reveal worth it and make it different. I, I think I think you're right, though, in that it does really oddly feel like a template for a Marvel movie and almost right down to what I was talking about, that the longer it goes on, the more kind of numbing the experience, like, you know, the first half of these movies, it's always so much interesting than the second half that, like we've talked about before, always just devolves into just these endless, boring CG fights. And this is, you know, 2003 when, you know, the CG was less photorealistic, but it was right on the edge of a whole bunch of stuff where they're sort of doing some practically and some CG. And I like some of the practical choices that they made, but... God, you know, with this many characters, well, they've got to kind of give each of them someone to fight. So at the end, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are fighting their Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde version guy. You know, like um, uh, Connery's got to fight Roxborough, spoiler, whatever the fuck. You know, and everyone has to have like, you know, Mina Harker has to fight spoilers, Dorian Gray. Everyone has to team up and one-on-one fight something. It's just, it just feels a bit endless by the end. Which is totally like what you see in Avengers, or sorry, Captain America, Civil War. Where basically you have someone fighting their equivalent in terms of having a similar skill set or they're fighting their best friend like Captain America and Black Widow. I think what's really interesting, maybe this film had to happen for the Avengers to happen because you just mentioned before the huge fight up between Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, so the Mr. Hyde character, and his charged up steroided opposite. That is straight out of... The second, the second unofficial Avengers film, The Incredible Hulk, where you have uh, Hulk fighting another Hulk whose name escapes him, but he's got the spikes sticking out of his head. And wait, that's that's official, isn't it? The the Ed Norton one, you mean? Yeah, sorry. Well, I say it's kind of like it's it, you're right. It's official, but they switched out Ed Norton, and they don't kind of brag about it in the same way as the other films. So gotcha. It was I think 2008, the same time as Iron Man, and Iron Man clearly became the leader of the group and Ed Norton walked away to make a sequel to American History X. Did he? So, no, no idea. God, I um, feel like I missed that one. 
Did he make that film called Leaves of Grass where he played a tw- he played himself twice, which is the ultimate fantasy? Yeah, but neither is a Nazi that we know of. <laughs> um, so, yeah, anyway, I feel like this film in some ways did set that template. The huge CGI mess at the end, again, is a sadly another template that was set. Um, having more practical effects helps, and I think they filmed in Prague, parts of Eastern Europe, to try and find locations that just looked authentically of its era. But if there was an opportunity for a blue laser into the sky, which we see in every DC and Marvel film, um, or even any end of the end of the world film at all, this film would probably have it. Fortunately, there is no excuse for a laser in this movie. Uh, despite it being steampunk technology, and so we don't get that laser. But it, we, what we do get is that problem of this CGI mess at the end. And it just makes me think, why don't more screenwriters and directors and producers do something closer to the reshoots they did for World War Z, where you go, you know what? We can't just keep building and building and building the stakes because it just becomes ridiculous it reminds me of that famous kind of little sequence in The Simpsons where you have, uh, who are those two guys? Itchy and Scratchy. Itchy and Scratchy. Oh, pulling their guns out. Pulling their guns out. And you start to see them pull guns on guns on guns on guns on guns until essentially it's this last image of like the globe and these giant guns sticking out from the planet Earth aimed at each other to try and one-up the other. It feels like that. And what was cool about World War Z is they went, you know what? Let's just reshoot the last act. So they obviously got it wrong the first time by having those giant stakes. And they went back to essentially like what would be the middle of like Friday the 13th or Halloween, like a sort of stalker movie. And that to me was much more interesting and provided much more tension than just ridiculous explosions after explosions after explosions. I mean, if you were to try and re-edit or reshoot this film, how would you do that to try and avoid just the ridiculous antics of five different characters fighting five different opponents whilst explosions occur in the background. Yeah, it's a very good point, isn't it? God. Under it really feels like it feels like both ahead of its time and sadly of its time, this film, doesn't it? <laughs> like No, it really I think actually this film was very ahead of its time, but unfortunately made all of the mistakes that other films wouldn't make. So, like I mentioned before, you know, this film had to be made for other films to stand on its its shoulders. And if you look back on it, I mean it came pretty close to ticking that Marvel template five years before, which is pretty remarkable. Like this film, I guess, is closer to Justice League or Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. And what it tried to do is do the team up without having the origins movies of each character one on one beforehand. And we had, I think it was actually three years ago today in 2017 where Universal released this famous photograph of – Johnny Depp, Tom Cruise, Javier Bardem, Russell Crowe, and I can't recall, but I think it was a female villain from the Mummy reboot with Tom Cruise, and they were launching the Dark Universe, where the idea was to do a an origin movie of each of these horror icons, like the Mummy, the Invisible Man, and so on, and they all will come together in some sort of team-up led by Russell Crowe's character, who I think he played Dr. Jekyll, didn't he? He did. He did. So to me, in some respects, this film made the mistakes of Batman v Superman. Like it tried to do too much too soon and do both the introduction and the team up and the ultimate villain all in one film. But yeah, but that's not so. Look at looking back on it, it's pretty courageous in some respects. But it's not so bad in a way. Like I think this film was interesting. Like you joked before about 
not having heard of any of these characters. But there's no way you could make a movie now that sort of offhandedly introduces Mina Harker or Dorian Gray or Tom Sawyer and almost expect the audience to go, oh, yeah, I'm familiar enough with the novel Dracula to understand that, you know, Mina was Jonathan's husband or that Dorian Gray has a picture in his attic. Nowadays, I think the level of familiarity with books um, (laughs) means that uh, there's no way you could have that sort of a, a, I guess, a liberty, you know, and, and maybe it's just because we're, you know, 16 more years on from whenever the last time someone made an Alan Quatermain movie or wrote an Alan Quatermain book. But um, I don't know. I That kind of impressed me. You know, at, at the one point when they're like, oh, um, Richard Roxburgh is revealed to be the villain and he's like, just call me, you know, Moriarty. And they don't do some sort of Moriarty as in Sherlock's nemesis. There's, there's there's a kind of quaint and nice expectation that you know who Moriarty is. I like that. I respected that. I respect it as well. I like it as well, except I think it failed for that reason because most people just hadn't read the original comic book series and I think the studio thought, well, we don't need to explain this stuff because everyone knows basically who these characters are. And you know what? It's based on a famous comic book and therefore it must be well-known enough as it is. So yes, I like that I'm, they did I'm it, sorry, Ben, that you haven't that read were... some of the great works of literature. God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> um, by the way, I've got to say, uh, Captain Nemo. So I don't know the characterization of the character in that particular comic book, but I like the fact that he wasn't someone who resembled like the cartoon version of Aquaman with like blonde hair. I like the fact that he was of Indian heritage and I like the style, the aesthetics the cultural touches of his submarine. Having said that, let me say this. It did remind me of that episode of Night Boat oh, yeah. on The Simpsons where there's like that that uh, boat that's based, like Kit from Knight Rider and there's a great part where they're chasing baddies and it doesn't a baddie always say, or doesn't Bart Simpson say, ah, oh, man, there's always a canal. There's always a canal, you know, and uh, the idea yeah. in this film here that it just happens to be that wherever the baddie goes, it's always – Got water frontage. Always got views. Every week. Every week there's a canal or an inlet or a fjord. Yeah, classic night boat, the crime-solving boat. That's right. <laughs> Same thing here. It's like, well, I, I guess it's convenient that the baddies are always going to sea locations because it makes it very easy for Captain Nemo to be helpful. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and then speaking of the submarine and the pacing of this movie, there is a sequence where time does stand still, if not go backwards, where – I think it's about one hour into the movie, they get on the boat and you expect it to be a pretty fast transition to their location and they probably spend out half an hour just gas bagging. Uh, there's like a bonding scene between Tom Sawyer and Alan Quatermain where they take it in turns to shoot a uh, target on the horizon on the ocean. But a lot of talking and doesn't really add anything at all and I just wondered why they made those choices. Like I felt they had to justify Captain Nemo's role by having – more submarine action, but there was actually no need for it at all, in my view. Yeah, that bit went on. Uh, I haven't been so thrilled by a boat ride since the real-time trip to Skull Island in Peter Jackson's King Kong. Actually, that's a lie. King Kong rules. 
but they 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 do they do catch a long boat. I can't even recall. Was it like ten minutes on screen, or was it much longer than that? Oh, it's way longer than that. It's like forty five minutes just on the boat. <clears throat> really? Before they actually get to the island? Yeah, that movie goes for like nineteen hours, so they had time to spare. Oh wow, wow. Um, so look, overall, they're my thoughts on the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, I think it was ambitious at the time. I think it made mistakes that I was learnt from. I liked its ambition, and I so I, kudos for that. I didn't like its execution. Um, I don't think that these are the right characters. I think that Helsing is a much better example, which we'll discuss in a sec, of doing the same idea. And I also don't. I also felt a little bit over Prague. I'm not sure if this was shot in Prague, but. There was a window of time when everything from Blade 2 onwards was being shot in Prague, and I think I'm over Prague. Prague's a great place to be, but let, let, let's just ease up on the Prague. Fair enough. Uh, before we move on, my only other thought with this film is that it's real interesting that if you watched it now and say you were born a few years before this, you would watch this movie and, look, we will get to it in the awards, but be like, who are any of these people? Were these famous people? Even Sean Connery, you know, like this is famously his kind of last film. But you'd be looking at this cast going, fuck, man, like, you know, Chris Evans was making piece of shit movies back then. Why couldn't they have slotted him in as uh, as Tom Sawyer? Like who's this Who's this fella playing Tom Sawyer? Who's this fella playing Dr. Jekyll? Who's this fella playing Dorian Gray? Who's this f- woman playing Mina Harker? Who are these people? That is so true, Gabe. There's one comment. There's not a f- familiar face. 100% spot on. There's a comment I make at home when myself and my partner are watching TV and I'll often turn to her and say, God, the Americans cast so well. Like they'll cast just spectacular actors in even the smallest of roles, but they'll nail the right character, the right actor for the right role. I'm always impressed by that. Like there's just something incredibly professional and deep in the culture of American filmmaking with casting, particularly for TV. This one here, this film here, you've got to wonder how off the mark the casting director might have been, or the director, in choosing these particular actors because none of them, well, let me step back a bit, most of them haven't gone on to be particularly successful. In fact, most of them seem to have vanished off the face of the earth and that's odd to me because these types of films are often an opportunity to discover talent and you'll often pluck someone from an indie role who's received accolades and awards, even an Oscar, and put them in one of these types of movies and pay them more. Now, apparently, Sean Connery got paid $17 million, his last hurrah movie, which apparently left very little for anyone else. But but there are still actors you could cast who would have taken the same paycheck, but I guess it would have been a better prediction as to the their career in Hollywood which would reflect perhaps them being charismatic on screen or good actors or just find the zeitgeist. And from a casting point of view, I don't think this film found the zeitgeist in that regard. No, it's like it's cursed. <laughs> like like every like every role, like there are roles I look at, like Captain Nemo, Mina Harker, uh, the Invisible Man who's called Rodney Skinner in the film. I could think of a dozen people at the time they could have cast for the same paycheck that would have given the film a longer legacy because, as you say, like Chris Evans, for example, he had two cracks at the superhero genre before he nailed Captain America. Like, there are people out there that I would have thought you could push all your chips onto them and bet on them and that would therefore give the film a better legacy. 
like a film you could revisit and go, oh, there's an early version of Chris Evans, you know, a younger version of Mark Ruffalo. And it is, it's actually astounding how few of these actors have kicked on, which I'm not saying is their fault, but it's, a, it, it's just a, such a surprising situation where when you've got a team-up movie, like a heist movie, like a superhero movie, uh, like a man in a mission war movie, you at least expect to recognise two or three actors who have gone on to become leading men or women in their own right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and look, Van Helsing is only marginally better in this regard. So, <laughs> <laughs> let's jump to Van Helsing. Um, Gabe, what did you like about it, and what grinded your gears? Um, I should premise this by saying, as I said earlier, I think the Mummy is great. It really hit the hit the mark in terms of what it aspired to be and how it did it. I love, 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 love Stephen Sommers. Sommers? Sommers. Stephen Sommers. I love Stephen Sommers' film Deep Rising. That is an absolute all-time A-grade, B-grade picture. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, Van Helsing sucks. Wow. Okay. Why? Oh, just like everything about it. It's I. I hate the tone. It, it, everything feels like it's just off by like 20%. It's like overcooked. It's overcooked tone, overcooked design aesthetic, horrible performance is across the board, you know, whether it's like Roxburgh's ultra hammy Dracula or Jackman's weirdly uh, tired Van Helsing. Oh, just... It's just bad. I don't like the design of the monsters. I like the opening sequence. Uh, I like Kevin J. O'Connor as Igor. I don't know. Just a lot of it feels stupid. Just stupid. Yeah. Well, tell me this. Do you like the basic premise behind both these movies of a horror gothic steampunk pump? Steampunk. <laughs> mm, steampunk. A gothic. It sounds like a porno. A gothic superhero steampunk tech superhero mishmash. Do you like that as a concept? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you've got to be on board. If you're not on board that, neither of these films are enjoyable. But if you can get on board with that concept, then it comes down to execution. It's absolutely execution. And and I guess I get what Summers was going for. It, it, it just sort of moves the, the dial away from where the mummy landed and pushes it into a territory where I guess it kind of just doesn't quite work. It's a bit it's it's too campy but too self-serious, too big but not big enough. I don't know. It just sort of doesn't it just doesn't work for me. It's like too much kind of crappy comedy. Uh, t- trying to fuse too many like it's Bond but it's you know also the universal monsters. It's like all these gizmos. I don't no, it just it just doesn't work for me. Um, well, that's that's the other genre which they included, and that's James Bond, the espionage thriller. Yeah, I recall at the time I was only watching reviews on TV by two Australian film reviewers, David Stratton and Margaret Pomeranz. This is back in the day where you'd still watch people like Ebert and Cisco. Is it Cisco? Ebert and Cisco. Cisco. There were still those types of people you'd read in the paper or watch on TV. And perhaps read less of online reviews by film bloggers. Now I read all of my reviews online, uh, either by New York Times or 
particular websites I follow that with, you know, sort of film news, gossip like Slash Film, for example, which I love. Back then, though, it was always these two Australian reviewers on our national broadcaster who I'd watch. And I think I remember at the time they made the comment that essentially this was uh, James Bond via the horror genre. And Van Helsing is essentially a guy with gadgets. And David Wenham's character essentially is playing Q, who provides those gadgets to James Bond, a.k.a. Hugh Jackman, which is really funny because you actually had the guy, Sean Connery, who played one of the most iconic James Bonds in the other film, albeit not with the gadgets and so on. And I do recall, though, in my memory, I've always thought, is that a terrible idea or a great idea to take James Bond as a character with gadgets and his sidekick? and then reorientate him somewhere else. And essentially, tell me if you disagree, that's what Christopher Nolan did in Batman Begins. He essentially made um, the butler character, Alfred, like Q, who became his 2IC, who was the one who had tech expertise and military experience and developed all these gadgets for Batman to use. Um, It worked in Batman Begins, I think it works conceptually in this film. It's just to me, it's 20% off, as you say, with the tone and execution in some respects. But I I do like the idea of it. And if David Wenham wasn't acting like an absolute um, putz, I mean, he was directed that way, obviously. <laughs> he, it looks like they basically put wires behind his ears too to make his ears stick out, to make him more unattractive and a little bit more goofy. And- David Wenham's a fantastic actor, so I'm just assuming that every actor here was directed to act in this way um, on the instruction of Stephen Summers because we've all seen them in other films play much more nuanced characters and, (laughs) you know, act in a more grounded way. But clearly the instruction was we are doing this horror, superhero, espionage, thriller mishmash And we therefore need to have acting that kind of somehow suits that genre hybrid, which I don't think was necessary. Like, why did they have to essentially, to me, overact? Whereas I feel you can actually mash those genres together and still make it grounded, don't you? Like, don't you think that Marvel in some ways, and I guess even more so DC, have tried to do that? They've tried to uh, ground superhero genres, particularly Batman, in the real world. I think you can do it, but maybe this film was too insecure about doing that or was just too radical to try and ground something which just on the face of it is just so outrageous, like Frankenstein's monster, but, but werewolves, Dracula. But you're right, but it doesn't have to be gritty. Like this, this notion that to make something realistic it has to be like the gritty reboot is so fucking boring. Like, Oh, to be clear, to be clear, I'm not saying gritty and I 100% agree this- they, people often conflate grounded with gritty. No, that's right. Like it's one of the same thing. Totally. And I'm not saying that because I think a lot of the online film nerds talk about how they really want gritty and we've seen all these terrible studio superhero movies where they've tried to do what they thought was why Batman was successful, which is gritty, The Dark Knight, and that's actually the wrong lesson to take from The Dark Knight. I think grounded is different and um, – let, let me just say that realistic stakes, I would call, is an element of a grounded execution, not just making it dour. Well, and both of the guys who made these films, um, Norrington and Summers, 
came off movies where they arguably really nailed the tone. Um, I love um, Norrington's Blade. I know you like it less than I do, but I think he really got the tone of that film right. Um, And, again, Summers really gets the tone of The Mummy or Deep Rising, you know, which is a silly silly movie. So, so yeah, it doesn't have to be, you know, it can still be a bit campy or whatever or a bit silly or goofy or fun. You know, it doesn't have to be self-serious, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's a fine line, isn't it? Yeah. I'm just trying to understand what Summers was thinking in terms of directing these actors for these performances. Do you think it's because they were on green screen for a lot of the film and so therefore they were just acting incredibly theatrically? I mean- Richard Roxburgh in both these films is acting at 120%. Oh, God. It, it's it's terrible and he's he's a great actor. He can be really nuanced. Like he's in an Australian TV series called Rake where he plays um, an alcoholic lawyer who has a great sort of black sense of humour and, uh, you know, he's a bit depressed at times and he's really good. He's really good. Um, and that's a grounded TV show set uh, in the legal fraternity in Sydney and contemporary times. So it's got, it, it must come back to being directed, but I just don't understand why they went so big um, because it didn't do any favours. Now, look, The Mummy has a lot of campness to it and comedy, but he got the balance right of that tone. And I guess you could say that in some respects – a campness can be acceptable or you can get away with it if the film is set in a certain era, right? Like yeah. you know when you see like punching scenes, like fighting scenes where they they stage them to almost resemble how the punching or fighting scene would have been shot 50 years ago. You know, like it, it's that's a swashbuckling style. Like you don't shoot like a Bourne film with the shaky cam and fast cuts. You sort of shoot it in a wider screen and – when people punch, they kind of like draw their fists right back and have a huge sort of swing through the air. I feel that was infused in The Mummy and it works. Maybe it's because The Mummy had the reference point of films that were made back in the 1920s. So therefore, there was a template he could work with. Whereas this film is set pre-cinema and so therefore there wasn't some sort of template. I don't know. I mean- the, the horror films, what are they called? The Hammer Horror Films, they're not as goofy as this. So it's not like they were an archetype. It just flummoxes me. I'm just trying to understand the psychology of the director who got it so right twice beforehand or three times if you include Deep Rising, but just swung and missed badly here. Yeah, I think it's just choices. Like you say about Roxbury, he's a great, he's a great actor, so it's no slight to... To him, we can only assume that he was asked to behave in these ways. But God damn it, if you are writing a list of the worst on-screen Draculas, he would be at the top of that, you know, or very near the top of that that list. Christ, he's 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 terrible. Um, and you know, even stuff like his hair. Oh God, I hate his hair. I love hair in movies, but oh, his hair is terrible. The transformation, the way he transforms. You know, the sort of idea to make Dracula sort of more demonic or whatever, you know, interesting. But, yeah, I, I, it's just a successive uh, – it's just a succession of, what would you say, uh, approving 
designs and concepts that kind of don't work. And and maybe it's a casting thing. Like Brendan Fraser was perfectly cast as a kind of, you know, uh, Indiana Jones-esque idiot in The Mummy. But here, you know, maybe maybe the casting's just off. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually thought the casting of the other actors was okay. Um, unfortunately, influenced by bad uh, direction or bad character design choices. But I thought um, Kate Beckinsale was fine as that character, um, as the heroine slash, or she's like an action heroine. It's a bit cliche. They stick her in pants to make it clear that she ain't going to be sort of, you know, one of those girls you'd see in bodices and flowing dresses. In this film, she's a hero too. Okay, that's fine. I mean, this is back in 2004. So this is in a time when they really are fighting the idea of still back then damsels in distress. So that's cool that they made her more of an action hero. Um, I thought the other actors were fine, just the makeup on them was just terrible. Like the choices made with Frankenstein's monster, Ugh. I do not know terrible. how they decided to take every cliche in Hollywood history of Frankenstein's monster and mash it into that design. It it doesn't make any sense at all. Like I look at a film which had De Niro playing Frankenstein, for example, and that was much more of a naturalistic depiction in the sense that he looked like he had realistically, unquote, been sewn together. This guy, this Frankenstein's monster, has electricity glowing in his brain and one scene he sort of peels away a piece of his face like it's pizza and puts it back into place. It's just goofy and it's like every time there could have been a good choice made, they went for something totally over the top, which to me undercuts the naturalism, again, as much as you can possibly have naturalism in this type of movie. Um, You know what it is? It's about the rules of the movie. You can have a far-fetched superhero movie, a far-fetched horror movie, but as long as the rules are consistent in that world, you'll go with it. The problem with this movie is that the rules are never established, like gravity and so on, and therefore the rules just change throughout the film. And I sort of feel it's the same with character design. Like you set up this guy as having practical James Bond-esque gadgets, okay, cool. And then when he kind of like uses them, they kind of are a an extension of real life. Like when he fires his machine gun, uh, what do you call it, like a crossbow? Oh, yep. Like it's fictionalised, but you can kind of go with it, right? Like you go, okay, I've seen crossbows, I've seen machine guns, this is like a steampunk hybrid of that. You kind of go with it, it makes sense. I, I don't think you question the reality of that particular weapon. But then you see the head of Frankenstein's monster with the glowing electricity in it, and it just doesn't match that world in any way. Am I, am I being too harsh, or what do you think about the, the rules of the game, the rules of the genre? If you're going to do a genre mash like this, you've got to be really clear on which parts are elevated and which parts are grounded and keep that consistent throughout the film. I, I think you're totally right, and both of these two movies have this issue, like, Steampunk, I guess, is kind of interesting, but but both of them sort of suffer from that thing. It's like, oh, why would anyone want to watch a movie set pre-20th century? Well, let's just shove machine guns into them and just have Connery go, automatic, automatic weapons? Um, because if they're firing, you know, lever-action rifles, people will get bored. It's just like, no, 
you can you can make your old timey shit thrilling. You don't have to make your crossbow some sort of hand cranked fucking machine gun crossbow. But you know, I think it was just a, a reaction to the to the times. Um, and it was interesting, like you say about um, Beckinsale, because she. She was also in a vampires versus werewolves leather pants movie that came out at the same time as this. If we're doing, what would you call, what's a third twin called? A triplet? <laughs> is that what it's called? There you go. Triplets, yeah. Uh, triplet movies. This is one of those rare triplets where, what was that one called? Underworld. Underworld, yeah. Um, Which actually was very successful and went on to have four films actually. So you'd argue that it got it right in terms of what, audiences wanted and found that balance between a Romeo and Juliet uh, romantic genre, as in like, you know, uh, star-crossed lovers, meets action, meets horror. I would say, though, that interestingly it probably did get what it set out to do more right than these ones in that even if its tone or style looks like some shitty Evanescence music video or something like that, I don't know, some sort of crap like that, um, it... It is the, you know, there's probably a reason why they made three more of those and no more Van Helsings and no more League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Well, they did make the Van Helsing TV series, so clearly they thought there was something to that. I've got to say, and again, this is the conflict I have, I do think the concept of Van Helsing is a great concept. Even if you actually haven't heard of the character Van Helsing, Therefore, you can't appreciate the reinvention of that fictional character. The idea of Van Helsing being a monster hunter. I mean, there's actually a film elsewhere in IMDb you can find called Monster Hunter, and you'd call the film Monster Hunter. But the idea of having someone who is like a James Bond or um, a, a Clarice, uh, what's her name from uh, Sons of the Lambs? Starling. Clarice Starling. Clarice Starling. Like the idea of having someone as a serial killer hunter or a monster hunter, the person who was the best of the best, the go- Morgan Freeman from um, Kiss the Girls, like the idea of having someone who is the best of the best chasing down the worst of the worst. I love that. Like credit where credit is due to Stephen Summers and he's gone, let's just take that and transplant it to the horror genre and we'll make a fictional character, Van Helsing, who isn't doesn't have these attributes, we'll just kind of like redesign that character to do that. That's cool. And I just think if they had got it right, they could have actually had three more films like Underworld. And I think the TV series being made kind of validates that there is a good idea there if you can get the execution right. Okay. Are you talking about the 2019 TV series? Wasn't there one in 2016 as well? I don't know. There you go. So, so yes, you're right. But like this movie, though, if you say that in this movie they use up Dracula, they use up Frankenstein, uh, they use up werewolves, uh, they use up Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde in the opening sequence. In the sequel, you've actually burnt through all of your your big ticket Universal monsters. I guess who have you got left? You got Van Helsing going fuck up the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, actually, you're 100 percent right, and. That's the issue in having a film like Extraordinary Gentleman, where basically you risk not having the origin story. You burn up everyone in the team up. There's nowhere to go afterwards because you've used your big bad, your big villain already. So I would say for both movies, they would benefit from slowing things down and creating a longer runway before some sort of team up. Or maybe in Van Helsing, essentially he just picks off one 
iconic villain at a time. Like you start with Dracula and then the sequel is Dr. Frankenstein's monster and so on, like the werewolf is number three. I mean, that to me would make more sense. And I actually think it'd be really interesting because imagine if you had, I mean, here's a pitch for you which we could save perhaps for our, our little sequel is it's like Heat meets Van Helsing, right? You've got the best bank robber against the best cop. And then you have them come together briefly for that one scene across a medieval diner. Sure, sure. The idea of the best against the best, I love. And I think audiences really appreciate it too because it's the ultimate escapism and it creates ultimate fear. You want to be the cop or if you're a sociopath, you want to be the villain. But you appreciate, as Al Pacino appreciates in De Niro, the skill of the other, even if you – don't respect them, you appreciate, or, or you respect them, but you don't like them. There's an interesting element here where if you'd actually made Van Helsing without Richard Roxburgh doing 120% of ham and you just jettisoned the other characters and you made it just a film where perhaps Dracula is in hiding, you know, he's he can't be living in this huge castle in Transylvania where he's drawing attention to himself. He essentially is living on the run. He is like Jason Bourne at the start of uh, the born supremacy, just sort of like moving on the run to stay on the low because he fears being caught because he is the minority and therefore you have some sort of sympathy for him that he's a tragic figure that's been cursed with this awful um, disease slash skill and then there's a, gra- it's a nuance and Van Helsing can therefore be a bit like, uh, you know, a bit like Tommy Lee Jones. It's like, it's like the fugitive. Here we are. It's the fugitive <laughs> meets Van Helsing. And who are you rooting for? Are you rooting for Dracula on the run or are you rooting for the Tommy Lee Jones Van Helsing on Harrison Ford's tale? Like these are ways you go to me which make the film more grounded. You can still set it back then and give yourself a bit of scope for three or four sequels. Just an idea. Totally, totally. So we should actually probably get on to the awards in a sec. Uh, any other final thoughts? Um, I just had a couple of things I wanted to throw away. Uh, positive legacies of this film. Richard Roxburgh met his wife, Sylvia Coloco. Oh, that's nice. Who played one of the, um, what do you call it, the, the female vampire, one of the wives. Br- Brides of Dracula. Yeah, and she played Bride Verona. So that's a good thing. I did notice, did you notice the ADR on David Wenham? I think every scene featuring David Wenham's character is 80 yard, and I wonder if it's to make him sound more goofy in post-production because his performance is also very silly. And I think that they actually did 80 yard. I can't find any research on this, but I feel looking, listening to the sound of his audio in every single scene and noticing how goofy the character is, I wonder if basically they had to elevate his performance in post-production to kind of make the film more consistent with the performance of Richard Roxburgh and other characters. Just a theory. I would imagine most of all of the dialogue in a movie like this is ADR, not just his. Um, I think most big, big Hollywood movies essentially almost loop the entire movie. So it may well be that David Wenham is just not as good at doing ADR as everyone else or they made a specific design choice in ADR that didn't sync up to his lips. Um, I'm not a post-production sound guy. I might be way off the mark with the extent to which they ADR, but I have a feeling that Sam could confirm that for us right now. 
Sam? Hello, Gabe. Hello, Ben. Uh, yes, indeed, they do ADR a lot of the dialogue in these big blockbuster films. Um, most of the dialogue in these movies end up being ADR because of the fans that might be on set or, you know, the countless number of crew stomping about the place. The costumes are often a big problem and so they end up just ADRing it all. And, you know, you ADR a few lines, you might as well ADR the whole scene because it matches better, which for the listeners of the show that aren't familiar with the term, ADR stands for Automatic Dialogue Replacement. There's nothing automatic about it, but what they do is they they get the actors back into a studio in, in a um, controlled environment and they re-record the lines. They'll often re-record new lines for expositional reasons. So if you hear a line that sticks out a little bit, but it's over the shoulder and it's, you can't actually, you're not seeing the person's face, they've done that afterwards to try and explain a plot line that didn't quite make sense in test screenings. That happens quite a lot. They tend not to ADR too much on independent films or as little as they can get away with. There's always some necessary lines, but for financial reasons, but also for reasons of performance. They On independent films, they tend to try and stick with the sync dialogue, the production dialogue. And interestingly enough, also on Christopher Nolan films, they they he prefers the production dialogue, the performance that they captured on the day. Picture editors prefer the production dialogue because a picture editor will spend a long time they're not only picking the best take visually, but they're picking the best take in terms of performance, in terms of the dialogue delivery as well. So typically Christopher Nolan, Clint Eastwood and uh, Tarantino don't use too much ADR. It's likewise with the Coen brothers. They, they'll use it when it's necessary, but but not as a rule like, say, Michael Bay or I don't know. Zack Schneider, you know, those kind of cunts. They use heaps. They use heaps of ADR. Um, In this case, I would suggest David Wenham has been directed to act that way. And if he didn't act that way during the shoot, then, you know, I pity the poor dialogue editor who tried to fit the dialogue in his mouth. Because even if you're saying the same words, if you deliver them in a different way, they won't fit in your mouth and you'll get a very uncanny valley feeling behind it. So um, I hope that clarifies for you. Enjoy the rest of the pod. Thanks, guys. <laughs> anyway, um, thanks, Sam, for that. Thanks, Sam. Oh, really appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. It cleared that up. So, Gabe, we should just wrap up our combined review here. Are there any final thoughts you had as to which of these two films did a better version of a gothic horror superhero genre? Uh, did either of them do it better? I mean, you know, I, I felt like I was, we've been quite hard on these movies or I've been particularly hard on Van Helsing. There is some nice filmmaking in both of these um, pictures. Uh, you know, the opening sequence of Van Helsing I think is pretty nice and there's there's various little set pieces in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that I think work well. So, you know, I think as far as these films go, they're worth watching. Like I've I've seen both of these movies more than once, so I'd never regret having seen them. To be honest, I don't think either does anything better than the other, and that they're both they both sort of miss the mark for much the same 
reasons, you know. They're just they're just both a little off. And both films come from filmmakers with much better versions of movies like these within their oeuvre. Tell me then, which film has aged better? Mm, I'd say The League of... No, I'd say Van Helsing. No, I'd say <laughs> both of them. I don't know. I feel like both haven't aged particularly... Both were harbingers of things to come, like you said, but neither age particularly well for me. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think they both age badly. I would probably say Van Helsing has aged better just because of the concept. Mm. So the film itself hasn't, but the concept has, and that's evidenced by the fact that they've looked to remake this as a character. So that sort of speaks to perhaps its popularity or the potential of the concept in contrast to LXG. LXG. Uh, how about any missed opportunities or plot holes? Um, can I start with Van Helsing? This is a ludicrous plot hell and makes no sense at all. But spoilers for those who have not yet seen Van Helsing. There is a plot point that is pivotal to this film where Kate Beckinsale's character's brother is turned into a werewolf by Dracula and Dracula ostensibly surrounds himself with werewolves to use to defend him even though that werewolves are his kryptonite and the only character or creature that can kill him on Earth. Um, okay, please explain to me how that's a smart decision for Dracula to make. It makes no sense at all and just seems a plot convenience so that when, again, spoilers, Hugh Jackman's Van Helsing is bitten by that character and becomes a werewolf himself, Hugh Jackman can be the guy that takes Dracula down. It's dumb. Thoughts? Yeah, yeah, that's silly. I mean, the idea that Van Helsing was also, he was once an angel and he's been wandering the earth, like Kane in Kung Fu, um, you know, solving this sort of mystery. I mean, I, I guess it's emblematic or indicative of the film being kind of overstuffed. Like it wasn't enough just to be like, hey, he's Van Helsing, the famous vampire hunter. He also has to be some fucking descended angel. Yeah, exactly. I guess it's a way of trying to make him more mythical. Like a, a, if in some respects in Zack Snyder's adaptation of Superman, he's made as a Jesus-like figure. In some ways in making Van Helsing an angel figure, it makes him, I guess, a form of immortal that is the good version opposed to the living dead version. Yeah, yeah. Look, if the, yeah, I, I don't know. Marrying those things doesn't work. Like if you just want a good... Archangels battling for the, you know, the the souls of man. Just go watch the fucking The Prophecy, you know. That movie rules. <laughs> I love how you basically give tips to our audience as to other films they could see. Not these films, but yeah, films that do this better. Yeah, totally. Look, if you come away from listening to this and you can watch two movies, don't make them The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Van Helsing. Make them The Prophecy and Deep Rising. <laughs> All right, before we move on to trivia, uh, just really quickly... Which uh, Dr. Heckle, Mr. Jo- Mr. Hyde? No, Dr. Dr. Yeah. Heckle? Heckle and Jide. <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde? Did you like more? Because these films I do think do suffer from bad CG or CG of the time in the early 2000s. And some of the scenes where Stephen Fleming is walking around with these droopy arms that are either really uh, unanimated practical arms, which just look silly just hanging off the body or they couldn't afford to animate them in CG. But they're both very 
let's just say, distinct and the director's made choices for the design of Mr. Hyde, in my view, they're both terrible. Uh, I Weirdly, my memory of Van Helsing before I rewatched these films was that Jason Fleming was the Jekyll and Hyde in Van Helsing, or that was the design. I, I got the, the the character kind of confused. I, I quite like Jekyll and Hyde in LXG when he's, they've done the more practical effects and he's clearly just in some giant, giant muscle suit standing on, I don't know, like a couple of apple boxes or something. I reckon it's really funny and cool. That muscle suit reminds me of the depiction of Bane in I think it was Batman Forever. Do you recall that one? Or maybe it was Batman and Robin where in the oh, late yeah. 90s. He inflates. Yeah, he inflates, <laughs> that's right. He basically has like, he looks like essentially he's wearing like a balloon outfit or something. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I am I think the Robbie Coltrane voiced Mr. Hyde in Van Helsing is very terrible because he's all CG and it's, you know, right at that point in CGI history where they were doing fully CG characters that just just never looked like they fit in the practical space. So they just look like kind of car- much too cartoony and you really had to be willing to go along with that. I, I, look, I guess this is another prime example. of. I just wish they in Van Helsing had cast an actor to play, like a big guy, just a real big guy. So so I'm going to vote for LXG because at least they put him in a stupid-ass inflatable suit sometimes. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, let's move on. Let's do our trivia and then our box office. So let's go with the behind-the-scenes making of Little Did You Know. So let's start with LXG. So what we haven't discussed is director Stephen Norrington had such a hard time with this movie that he announced at the time he'd never direct another movie again, and he hasn't. Wow. Which is quite remarkable. So we'll save that for one of the awards. Um, Reportedly, he didn't like the studio supervision and was uncomfortable with the large crews, which is odd given that he'd made Blade beforehand. So that's interesting. Um, And apparently at the premiere, when Sean Connery was asked where the director was, as he wasn't there, he responded, "Uh, check your local asylum. (laughs) So apparently Sean Connery earned his $17 million, who also said he didn't understand the script at all and had no idea what he was doing, clearly decided to go out with one last hurrah with a big bag of money, didn't understand the script, the characters, this genre mash, and didn't go with the director. So I think he was going to retire anyway, but this film may have accelerated that. Yeah, I mean, apart from doing the voice work in one animated movie eight years ago, Connery, he he really drew a line under this one, didn't he? It must have been interesting for him because I suppose what Entrapment, Entrapment would have had some visual effects or maybe the Avengers would have had some visual effects. But this was probably definitely felt like the dawn of a new era of filmmaking and he just went, nope. <laughs> uh, same for me. I don't want to sit on uh, in a fake car as some grips, you know, uh, shake it in front of a green screen reacting to a tennis ball going, oh, oh, they're over there. And he just went, fuck it, no, (laughs) no. Well, apparently, um, you know how these things often blown out of proportion and so it's alleged and it's Hollywood legend. Apparently uh, Empire Magazine actually asked Jason Fleming if those bust-ups between Connery and Norrington were as bad as reported and 
Fleming actually said they were worse. <laughs> he said there was a, this one scene at the end of a take. Um, Connery shouted Norrington, um, what, you want me to walk down that road again, like a second take? And Norrington replied, for $18 million, I don't think it's too much to ask you to walk down a road. I mean. <laughs> to, to which Connery's reply was unprintable. Norrington's right, right? Totally, totally. That's right. Um, the only other curiosity I should mention is that one of the reasons why Hollywood loves these characters is because, of course, they have fallen outside public or outside copyright because they're in the public domain, which means anyone can remake them. But apparently they that excluded the character of the Invisible Man created by H.G. Wells. So that character had to be renamed in the movie and couldn't be called the Invisible Man, just an Invisible Man. <laughs> That's funny. It is. You can't be the, you have to be an. That's right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Um, now, jumping on to Van Helsing, this film didn't suffer in the same way from any fights and arguments. I couldn't find anything else interesting in relation to what went wrong. It appeared that <laughs> what went wrong were just choices made, um, nothing that was particularly bad. I thought it was interesting, though, that we talk about the idea of a film um, being engaging on the concept, even if the execution wasn't that good. This film made $65 million in its first week of North American DVD sales. Wow. Pretty amazing, right? Wow, yeah. Which means I guess this film was released at a time when DVD sales were incredibly popular and it traded off that. And But, you know, in terms of like making up for the budget at the box office, that's like to me really impressive. Wow. Yeah. I suppose I'm almost surprised. I guess this was just before the era of they could have pumped out a whole bunch of like DTV sequels, you know, just like starring Costas Mandalore or something as Van Helsing, you know, some C-grade ring-in and just done a whole bunch of like real real cheapies. I would have watched the shit out of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump on to casting what a shoulda couldas. Couldn't find much here, but it did appear that Stephen Summers was apprehensive about casting Kate Beckinsale because she was an underworld but eventually changed his tune. But he obviously was aware that there'd be a similarity in having, you know, a Dracula here and Dracula there and so on. So that, that's interesting. He at least acknowledged the similarity between the films. But other than that, it appears that they got everyone they wanted. Um, although, interestingly, before Wenham was cast, you're not going to believe who was considered for the role. I'll give you a clue. Famous Australian who uh, threw a shrimp on the barbie. What? No way. Yep, totally. Oh, man, imagine this movie with Paul, Paul Hogan. Hogan. Fuck. Yep. Oh. Uh, the other interesting thing is that Michael Bay was at one point considered to direct the film, but he went on to direct The Island instead. What would a Michael Bay version be like of this, do you think? I'd watch that too. Uh, yeah, I would too. I mean, I'd watch the Michael Bay version of anything. <laughs> I, I agree. Almost like, the, almost like the classier it is, the more I would want to watch it. I'd just like to see Michelangelo de Bay just ruin shit with his, <laughs> you know, or elevate it, or elevate it, because it can go uh, each way with Michael Bay. <laughs> um, and one more fact for you about uh, Van Helsing. You mentioned the character designer, Mr. Hyde, who was an all-CG character who appears at the very start of Van Helsing. There was something familiar about that character I couldn't quite put my finger on, and the design of the character was actually based on the French professional wrestler, Andre the Giant. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. So if you once you hear that, you can kind of see it. Yeah. Although I don't think the execution of that was close enough to realise it at the time. Totally, totally. And one last uh, casting woulda, shoulda, coulda for uh, the first one, L- LGX or LXG. What do you call it? The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Guess who was originally cast as Mina Harker, who instead of Peter Wilson, and this makes sense when you hear it. I'll give you a clue. She appeared in a Matrix sequel. In a Matrix sequel? Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith. No. Taller, wearing latex. Um, I don't know. Who? Curvaceous. Oh, uh, Monica Bellucci. Yeah, apparently so. Huh. Yeah. And Eddie Izzard read for the part of The Invisible Man, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. I would think he would have actually been quite good. Actually, I thought Tony Curran, who plays him, was pretty good. Um and uh, I quite like seeing it when he pops up in movies. Perhaps he'll get an award later. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, David Thewlis, we both like, also auditioned for the role of Jekyll and Hyde, ultimately played by Jason Fleming. You know what? I like Jason Fleming and David Thewlis would have been great, but I think they went the right way with Fleming in the end. He was good. Yeah, agreed. All right, moving on. Spot the Aussie. Well, I think we know the answer to this. So... Gentlemen, it has to be Richard, Richard Roxburgh. Did anyone else appear from Australia? Is Peter Wilson Australian? Oh, she is too. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Peter Wilson. Okay. Pe- okay. So Peter Wilson. She's an Aussie. How about Van Helsing? <laughs> All three main cast except for Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hugh Jackman's Australian. I wasn't. Hugh Jackman. I wasn't even mentioning. Yeah. David Wenham, Richard Roxburgh. So this is a weird thing. Stephen Summers has cast three recognisable Australian actors in these lead roles. What's with that? Because Richard Roxburgh hadn't been in much except for, in terms of international films, except for Mission Impossible 2. David Wenham hadn't either. So is this a situation where perhaps Hugh Jackman had a bit of executive producing clout and was able to encourage Stephen Summers to at least audition uh, some Aussie mates? Because it's interesting that this film is set in 19th century Europe, there's no need for Australians to be in this film. And as it transpires, they both give incredibly camp OTT performances, even though they can do much better when directed so. Weird, right? Yeah. I mean, I went and looked and checked. Maybe maybe some of the people who did the casting were Aussies or something, but nope, you know, none of them are Australians. They're American and British. So, And it wasn't shot in Australia either. No, that's right. So maybe you're right. Maybe it was just Hugh Jackman- you know, um, trying to trying to get his trying to get his buddies Dave and uh, Richie on screen for the onset uh, drinking sessions after work. That's right. Nice. All right, let's jump to marketing methodology, madness, and missteps. Now, I've already discussed uh, what happened with Norrington and Connery on Extraordinary Gentlemen. The only other interesting highlight I could find in relation to marketing was. For Extraordinary, they actually enhanced the breasts of Peter Wilson for the promotional posters, which is weird because they did exactly the same thing to Kate Beckinsdale's chagrin for Underworld. And she made a big point of it at the time that it was totally unnecessary. So this was an era where I think the same thing happened with Kieran Knightley. Oh, King Arthur, yeah, yeah. For King Arthur as well. There was obviously a thing where they felt they had to try and sell more sex through the posters and so they enhanced the the breasts of all these female actors. Um, I don't think that would happen now, but that was very much of its time. What do you think? 
I think you're I think you're right. Um, they should have put a big pair of titties on um, uh, Hugh Jackman on the poster for Van Helsing. Ah, <laughs> oh, those big big plump pecs of his. Yeah. Um, all right, let's jump to the box office. So, which movie was the box office champ? Have a guess. Look, I have I have no idea. Given that you told me how much DVD sales Van Helsing did, for all I know, it was it did gangbusters at the movie. I don't know, no idea. Well, Extraordinary Gentleman cost seventy eight US million dollars. It made sixty six and a half in the US, another hundred and thirteen internationally for a grand total of one hundred and seventy nine million dollars off a seventy eight million dollar budget. So there's a reason why they didn't make a sequel. In contrast, Van Helsing cost a whopping $160 million to make. Wait, what? Yep. This is in 2004 as well. Wow. So that's like $220 million, $230 million now. Yeah, but just think about it. Stephen Summers has made the two Mummy films. He's got Hugh Jackman who had just come off the first two X-Men films. Uh you can see how they would have given him a lot of money and toys in the toy box to play with. But but that's a bigger budget than, like, you know, Battlefield. Battleship. Yeah. Battleship, sorry. I know. That movie Battleship. Crazy. It's a bigger budget than Transformers. Yeah, yeah. It's a bigger budget than Pacific Rim. Like, And, and I don't feel you see all of the value on screen. Like, some of these scenes feel very contained and set on sets, like those scenes in the uh, town square and so on. So maybe just a case that the CG budget for all the vampires and monsters was just and werewolves was just so expensive that it was justifiable. I guess. Anywho, it only made $120 million domestically in the States plus $180 million internationally for a grand total of $300 million worldwide. So on a budget of 160 not so crash. Not enough, not enough. All right. Let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. Which movie impressed the critics? Have a guess. I my, my guess would be neither of these two films impressed the critics. Yeah, that's right. Extraordinary Gentleman tanked with 17% wow. on the tomato meter from 183 critics. Van Helsing didn't do very well either, 24%. Now, which film do you think audiences have cherished the most, if cherished is the right word? I think Van Helsing would be more more cherished, Ed. Yeah, well, yeah, right, but just. <laughs> okay. Gentlemen scored 44% with fans and Van Helsing scored 57%. So a pretty shallow victory. <laughs> Do you think the ratings or box office of either of these films, or let's say Van Helsing, was somewhat influenced negatively by the bad reception to the first film? I don't know, maybe. I guess, do you think they're similar enough that people would be like, ah, I feel like I've seen this one already or they're just different enough or different enough in sort of the execution of their marketing or whatever? It's a tough one. Yeah, I mean, I can easily justify these as twin movies based on that pitch we gave earlier about them being genre horror mishmash films set in the same era with steampunk tech. I think to audiences they probably wouldn't see it from the poster alone. I think they'd see one film as being a horror action film, another film as being a team-up movie set in Europe. Uh, so I don't think one film affected the other, but it certainly couldn't have helped. Yeah, I would have thought um, Underworld would have had more overlap with Van Helsing in terms of the 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 familiarity or the feeling that 
you might have seen this movie despite maybe the the premises having a similar but different but maybe particularly not as much overlap. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's one of those situations where audiences perhaps don't always know why they don't like something, but they have that instinct as to why it's not appealing to them. Mm. All right, let's jump to the awards. It's time for the awards. Drum roll, Gabe. Isn't that a trumpet? <laughs> I, don't, I guess so. I guess so. All right. Best title, go. Van Helsing. Yeah, I agree. I think neither of these films are particularly great, but I think League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is cumbersome and a bit pretentious. Nice. And trying too hard to emphasise this team up as well. Okay, best poster. Check out your podcast app. I put both posters side by side to give you a comparison, but if you haven't seen them, League basically has a couple of posters where essentially it's lots of headshots of unrecognisable fictional characters side by side, hardly inspiring. In fact, I'd say it's a terrible poster, mm-hmm. not to prejudice your choice, Gabe. Mm-hmm. Van Helsing, to me, gives you a closer sense of what this is. It has big hue with a hat and a cape-like Matrix-inspired leather cape or leather coat with a crossbow. And as we know from The Walking Dead, crossbows are cool. And we get kind of get like the iconic silhouettes of a Dracula creature, Frankenstein, and werewolf in the background. And Kate Beckinsale is sort of dressed in the sexy tight bodice outfit and a sword. To me, basically, is what it is. It says what it is on the tin. I I agree. Uh, also, I'll give Jackman's hat in this movie a six out of ten. Excellent. All right. <laughs> from now on, we'll be doing a whole new awards section. Based on little hats. Rate the hat. All right. So Van Helsing takes down the poster and the title. Let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award. Just like Billy Bob and Ben Affleck jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time when they starred in Armageddon, who got their big break in these twin movies, starting with Extraordinary Gentleman? Did anyone get a big break? Because I would say that the guy playing Tom Sawyer, Shane West, got a big break but didn't actually take advantage of it, so he might get an award later on. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? A lot of these actors in this sort of have an overlap between, for for many of them, this was their big break, but for many of them it was also the, you know, the short plank that they were made to walk off and fall from quite a high distance. Like you say, Shane West, who played Tom Sawyer, Stuart Townsend, who played Dorian Gray, Peter Wilson, who played Mina Harker, you know, I... Maybe this was Jason Fleming's first big, big movie, although he'd been quite memorable in, you know, lock stock, but perhaps that's exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, so, yeah, I mean. Maybe Nazarin Shah, who played Captain Nemo. Nazarin Shah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, okay. and who have we got on Van Helsing? I mean, this was definitely Wenham's big, big Hollywood break. He'd gone from Australian you know, noodling around in Australian movies for a while to this. Same with Roxburgh, Dickie, Dickie Rocks, you know. Well, Roxburgh um, got his break, I'd say, in Mission Impossible 2. So yeah, but, was- like, he was just a goon in that. He's just he's just henchman, the number one henchman, South African guy. He doesn't have any, well, you know. Excuse the pun about being cursed, but if you look at the cast of Van Helsing, it's not that dissimilar to Extraordinary Gentleman, like, People who didn't kick on, like Will Kemp, who played Vilken, like plenty of actors who didn't take advantage of their opportunities. The three brides have seemingly had zero careers 
given the opportunity of this career afterwards. So I don't know. Do we say, I mean, Kate Beckinsale? Could it be her opportunity? Was this before she did Underworld? Underworld came out in 2003, I think, so Underworld okay. would be. I mean, I'd say give, basically give it to the entire cast, bar Connery for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. They all okay. they all got a big shot. And like you say, when we get to the award of people who didn't capitalise, just give it to them again. <laughs> okay, done. All right. It's a shared award, guys. It's like one of those SAG sort of best uh, cast awards. Nice. Better put a ha- hand on the award and hold it each. Okay, moving on. The Before They Were Famous Award, a.k.a. the Blink and You'll Miss Them. Let's start with LXG. Did you spot any 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 big names in small roles? I didn't really. No, I couldn't recognise any. It's always harder in a monster movie when they're covered in makeup anyway. But it didn't appear there was anyone there. I will actually go, though, to Van Helsing, I guess an easy nominee who might take home the award for a paycheck is Robbie Coltrane playing the voice of CG Mr. Hyde. Yes, that's fair. Uh, but there's no one else. I'm All I've got is Robbie Coltrane as a possibility. No, it's an anemic ward this, uh, this week. Okay. Null and void. Null and void. No winners. Moving on. Let's go for the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award. Just like Tommy Lee Jones who stole the show in The Fugitive, who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role, starting with LXG? This this might be controversial, but I actually quite like Stuart Townsend as Dorian Gray. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think he's like, um, uh, what do you call it? He's sort of foppish. I mean, he's not really that foppy. I don't know, dilettante, is that the word, you know? Uh Gentleman, uh, immortal gentleman. I think he's pretty good. I, yeah, I, I actually, quite like him. I agree. Him. He, he is quite good. Um, yeah, I, I think that's fair enough call. I'd put him down or Jason Fleming. Um, yeah, yeah. I think Stuart Townsend does the right thing with the role. He knows he has to be a bit sexy but dark and a bit mysterious at the same time, and that's a hard line to walk without seeming like a wanker. So he's a good nominee. How about Van Helsing? Did anyone steal the show? Uh, you know what character who I really like in this film? I, I don't think he stole the show, but he feels like a nice little opportunity to. There's a dude who plays like the main villager and he wears a big top hat. Um, he's like the main like pitchfork villager. And he gets like decapitated, I think, at one point and his head goes flying towards the camera. Um, I, I, I've always quite enjoyed the the way he performed his role. Uh, I believe the actor's name was Tom Fisher, but I would not say it was a scene stealer. Uh, this is just a little opportunity to say I, I, I like what you did there, Tom, with your top hat role. God, you are just – you clearly have a fetish or an obsession with hats. hats. Yeah. No, this is a big hat. I like his hats. Chari- his character's of. name, actually in IMDb, is called Top Hat. <laughs> oh, there we go. All right, moving on. Top Hat gets it. Well done, Mr. Fisher. Let's go to the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films? Start with LXG. Oh, well, again, <laughs> the whole cast. Yeah, and like- Norrington, the director. I totally, and I think you know. Sometimes we 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 neglect the the behind the camera guys, but yeah, I mean, maybe it's got to be Norrington, right? Norrington. I mean, to not make anything else. If you've directed uh, Blade, that was a big success critically with the fanboy community in the box office, and you know, like launched a, a trilogy. 
You've then done this film. It's pretty amazing to not kick on with anything else. Like his IMDb filmography goes Death Machine 94, Blade 98, The Last Minute 2001, Extraordinary Gentleman 2003. I mean, he's been sent straight to director's jail and many other directors have been paroled for a lot less worse infringements than this one. Yeah, give it to Norrington. I know what the last minute is. Have you seen the last minute? No, I haven't. But before we move on from that, I've got to say, Stephen Summers, not that dissimilar. So he did kick on after this film to do the first uh, G.I. Joe film, Rise of Cobra. But he's been missing in action since then as well. He did a 2013 little little film, unquote, $27 million, called Odd Thomas that was caught up uh, in its release for various contractual reasons, and then nothing since. Hmm. So for a guy who made a bucket load of cash, uh, Catch Me If You Can, not the Tom Hanks version. Oh, sorry, not the Leonardo DiCaprio version. And Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks, you're right. Depends who you like the most. Uh, not The Adventures of Huck Finn, Jungle Book, Deep Rising, The Mummy, Mummy Returns, Van Helsing, G.I. Joe. Then there's Odd Thomas and then there's just nothing since. Yeah. So essentially he's been kind of missing in action for 11 years, more or less, which is quite remarkable. But at least he made another film afterwards and there is talk of another film in the horizon uh, called When Worlds Collide. So I think Norrington just pips him, but again, excuse the pun, I think the careers of both these directors were definitely cursed. Give it give it to them. Split it between them, Norrington and Summers. Done. Guys, you can split the Mickey Rourke Award and take home uh, an abdomen and a set of legs yourself each. Jumping to the winner-winner Chicken Dinner Award, who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high? Ooh, ouch, Gabe. Alex G. Who, who who came out on top of this? Jesus. Uh, I feel like you're kind of like sifting for alluvial goal and all we're just getting is just rocks. Alan Moore might have felt vindicated <laughs> in his hatred for adaptations of his work that this one was a turkey, which is interesting that he has this opinion because he's so anti-people making his stuff and occasionally they do a good job of it, for instance, the Watchmen TV series. Fantastic. It's great. And it, it, that's not even an adaptation, I guess, of his work. It just takes characters created by him and really takes them in its own direction, which he, he might hate even more, but it was really, really good. Um, so I, my vote would be for the, you know, her, hermit uh, Alan Moore. Okay. Uh, and how about Van Helsing? Any nominees? God, he came out on top of Van Helsing. Uh, no one, I think. Yeah. Oh, no one. No one. All right. Alan Moore gets it. He gets it for being basically spiteful. <laughs> nice. <laughs> if there's any reason to win an award, make it that. <laughs> All right. Jumping on to the Best Dialogue Award. Uh, what's your favourite quote for either of these movies? I myself couldn't find anything memorable, which I guess reflects how unmemorable these movies are. Did anything float to the surface for you? Float to the surface? <laughs> like a turd. <laughs> nice. I, I believe that was the I, – I think we all understood the subtext of what you were saying. <laughs> no, not, not, certainly not in when you're watching it, you're like, God, I'm going to be talking about those, you know, how polluted her womb is forever. Is that, is, is that a quote, is it? No, that's from Scarface. Your womb is so polluted. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of those lines that sticks with you forever. I don't know why. That's the line that popped into my head in this exact moment. But um, there's nothing like after watching these movies, like I'm going to be walking around saying, 
if you can't do it with one bullet, don't do it at all, which is some line that Alan Quatermain has forever and say that forever. So I did quite like the line um, in Van Helsing where Dracula says to Igor, Igor, do unto others. And then Igor jumps in and says, before they do it unto me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. And, hey, while we're here, man, I love Kevin J. O'Connor who plays Igor. He's great. I will save him for an award. There must be an award coming up, surely. Okay. I got to give one to Kevin. Maybe it's the next award, the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Uh, Oh, wow. Okay. To me, it's got to be, well, I mean, take your pick. I'm going to put down Roxborough for both. Ugh. He's, but look, he's got to win for Van Helsing because it's just like we've talked about. I don't want to, I don't want to go too hard on him, but it's just, it's just, I don't know. It's like malarial. It's fucking abortive. It's, it's the most brutal set of decisions since fucking uh, Germany invaded, uh, opened up a second front in World War Two. <laughs> All right. Well, unfortunately, Mr. Roxburgh takes it home for two films, uh, but fortunately offset by the excellent accolades he's received for every other performance he's done. All right, let's move on. The Taking a Paycheck Award for it speaks for itself. Uh, I would say for Van Helsing, it's got to be Robbie Coltrane doing One Day of ADR and getting paid five figures, I imagine, to play the voice of Mr. Hyde. Uh, how about you? Oh, good for Cracker. Um, I mean... Sean Connery, right? $17 million to do his last film. <laughs> Connery bowing out on on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's got to be Connery, surely. Like, Give it to Connery. This feels like a total F you to genre filmmaking where he's just said, I didn't get the script, I don't like the director, I'll take this final big paycheck and see you later. That's it. Good on him. All right, the Stephen Toblowski Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy, inspired by... The guy we know and love, Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. So who triggered Hey, It's That Guy, Gabe, when he or she appeared on screen? Um, Well, LXG, maybe Jason Fleming. He certainly pops up in a lot of stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, everyone would recognise him from, I guess it'd be Locks on Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, right? Yeah, I think those two are probably the ones which you would most recognise him in a sort of lead role from. But, you know, he turns up in a lot of little roles or indie movies, uh, sometimes memorably and sometimes less memorably. <laughs> That's right. But it might also be that I've just seen a lot of these crappy movies. Like, you know, he's the lead in that George A. Romero movie Bruiser, um, which I would highly recommend if you want to see Peter Stomare get shot by a laser beam. <laughs> You know, he's deep rising. Uh, he's in he's in From Hell in a small role. Uh, the Bunker and Below, those sort of like World War II horror movies, Transporter 2, <sighs> Mirrors. Just- Isn't Jason Fleming the guy who is always cast as a supporting character in a big-budget Hollywood movie but then plays the lead character in a lower-budget, less-publicised movie? Totally, totally. Basically, he's a character actor in big movies and he's a lead actor in small movies where they're just thankful to have his name to ride the coattails of that brand recognition. Totally. And um, look, for Van Helsing, maybe this is where I can give the award to Kevin J. O'Connor, who was an actor. He's in all of Stephen Summers' movies. He's great in Deep Rising. But he's pretty memorable as in in The Mummy he plays um, 
Uh, Benny, the kind of duplicitous sidekick to Brendan Fraser, and he's great in that. All right, let's give it to Kevin J. O'Connor. I feel like Jason Fleming's been awarded this award before or at least will crop up again. So, yeah. Kevin J, it's no Oscar, but the, you know, the Stephen Toblowski Award is waiting here for you. Otherwise, we'll FedEx to you. Let's move on. Let's move on. The Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough, starting with LXG. Do you think, Ben, there's the potential for too much overlap with these two awards? Because I'm just going to say... I'm just going to say the same two guys again. Like, I want Fleming in more stuff and I want Kevin J. O'Connor in more stuff. Well, to me, there's a difference because one is someone you recognise a lot who isn't necessarily a great actor. Right. And the other award is someone who is a great actor who isn't cast enough. Okay. So you can be, they're not, they're mutually exclusive. No, no, it's a fair point you make. It's a fair point you make. So who, who would you therefore give it to if you couldn't give it to either of the two gents we've just mentioned? Mm. Well, I don't think these films were cast that well. Uh, Nazir Ridden Shah, I thought was really good. I hadn't seen him much besides Monsoon Wedding. So I guess he played Captain Nemo would be a nominee for this one and should be cast in more. Uh, but as for Van Helsing, no one really jumped out. Um, yeah, I, I've got no one. Dave, there you go. Let's do we just vacate this award? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Let's call this one Dead and Buried. All right. No no nominees, no awards. Okay, moving on to the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. So, Gabe, which character steals the cake for the most ludicrous names? And surely amongst these two genre mashes, there's got to be a few, right? Yeah, but I feel like it's cheating just to say, oh, uh, uh, Alan Quartermain or Captain Nemo or... Well, let me help you out here. Rodney Skinner is the name they gave an invisible man. Get it? Skin? Skinner? Oh, okay. I get it. Yeah, it sounds more like a serial killer, you know, play on words if you ask me. So there aren't many, I agree. Let's jump to Van Helsing. Any names? I mean, Anna Valerius is a pretty silly name. Yeah, it's trying to play off uh, the words delicious and delirious, I think. Is it? (laughs) Is that what you think? That's what comes to mind. Uh, what about Valerian Valerian Steel? No, it's a herb. Yeah. No, look, I, I'm going to give it to Tom Fisher's character, Top Hat. <laughs> nice. I love the fact that IMDb, he's clearly been given just the typical extra name where in lieu of actual name you give a description as to the character, yet weirdly appears above Dr. Frankenstein, Mr. Hyde and Dr. Jekyll in the uh, IMDb priority as to who appeared. So Top Hat? Sure, sure. Top Hat certainly beats Barmaid. <laughs> All right. The Memento Award. Now, this doesn't count for me because I hadn't seen these films before, but for yourself who's watched these many times before on pay TV and DVD through the 2000s, any moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched these movies? I mean, to be honest, not really or not in a way that made me feel good about myself. <laughs> okay. All right. That's, let's call it a uh, dead rubber. Moving on. The Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard, inspiring subgenres like Under Siege. If imitation is the ultimate flattery, Gabe, did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? Starting with LXG, I guess you could say they, 
I guess, made mistakes with the superhero team-up movie, but, you know, that's been done in comics for years and years. Um, I guess you could say Van Helsing's been inspirational in relation to the TV series, and both films could have inspired the ill-fated dark universe that Universal had planned. Totally. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's spot on. I mean, I don't know, I guess, enough about just life, the world, humans to really say with any certainty. But Van Helsing does feel slightly ahead of its time and then, like we said, also behind the eight ball. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Um, it's a shame. It's a shame we never got the full dark universe that they had to. They had to bail on that after just one film. It's a, a world we'll just have to imagine. It's you know maybe it's, it's one of those situations. We've got a hashtag release the dark universe. Who knows what giddy heights those magnificent team ups could have taken us to? <laughs> All right, it's come to that time of the podcast. End of the awards. Now it's time to get to the milking the speed cow dry award or pitch. So Gabe. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or Van Helsing. A big studio executive has us in his office. He says to us, look, both films attempted to reinvent horror legends as 19th century gothic superheroes and and fused it with some really cool steampunk technology. So, Ben, Gabe, we want you to make a sequel. What's your pitch to make it and how do we make it? Go. Well, hmm, what are we up against here? Van Helsing's basically used up all of their most famous characters. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen has many more characters they could call upon if you wanted to be like, oh, who's the newest member of our team? It's Mrs. Havisham. (laughs) (laughs) You know, joining us today, it's Gandalf or fucking Emma or Philip Marlowe. Or, oh, you mean like, like the Jane Austen-style team-up movie? Well, I mean, they could just rotate in any old, any old, you know, uh, character. Oh, helping us solve the mystery this week, it's Humbert Humbert from Lolita. Stay away from him. His great uh, weakness is young girls. <laughs> Let's get back to first principles here. Uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen tanked at the box office and there's no hope of getting some of those major actors back. Well, not the major one, which is Sean Connery. Van Helsing also tanked at the box office, not as badly, but didn't do as well as that hoped and not enough to make sequels. But it has Hugh Jackman who you could get back for a sequel and same with Kate Beckinsale. Oh, she dies. Oh, you know what? That doesn't matter because they can bring dead characters back in these horror movies anyway. I would say that Van Helsing has obviously proved to be interesting enough to people in terms of the idea of doing an action James Bond-esque horror film as a concept to inspire a TV show that it's popular enough as an idea. And there was even talk of a 2009 Tom Cruise version with Gilmo del Toro directing at one stage. So I think there's clearly interest by the audience out there for that Van Helsing concept. I reckon... There's a possibility here that you go for the grand, the grounded contemporary 2020 Van Helsing. No steampunk. It's just set now with a James Bond-esque character who hunts down uh, monster characters who hide in the shadows, much like Manhunter or something where 
detectives hunt down serial killers. This is the TV series version of Manhunter set with Van Helsing as the lead and real-life monsters. A bit like a Buffy meets Van Helsing meets Man- Mindhunter. Wait, so you said first you said Manhunter and that got me all all moistened <laughs> because God damn do I love Michael Mann's Manhunter. But then you said Mindhunter. <laughs> and look, I, I guess I'm equally moist for that too. Uh, but but are we saying that this would be a a slow procedural whereby a modern Van Helsing went and interviewed various <laughs> various other uh, 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 what do you call it locked up monsters so as to find uh, the key to to discovering the true identity of the greatest monster there is out there. I mean, weirdly, okay, okay, okay. That's oddly beep beep beep. Oh, let me reverse. I've made a mistake. But that's oddly the plot of both Manhunter and Mindhunter. You know, Will Graham's got to go get the old get the old smell back from Hannibal or whatever he says. And in Mindhunter, yeah, you know, chat to Ed Kemper to catch the Atlanta killer or whatever the fuck. Well, isn't that TV show supernatural, basically, this idea anyway? Two ordinary good-looking chaps, you know, take down horror legends in contemporary times? Yeah, I guess so. So would it just be basically the TV series Supernatural but with a lead character in a leather jacket and a nice little hat? Yeah, like- I'd probably drop the hat and leather jacket, and if we're just trying to make Supernatural more popular, just add incest porn. Whoa, okay, shots fired. <laughs> well, I don't know. That's just real popular these days. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just trying to come up with popular shit here, man. <laughs> you know, I like hats, but man, the the voters on Pornhub have spoken. <laughs> we're trying to target four quadrants here, which is always a challenge of doing a horror film. How do you track the kids and the oldies? I reckon we've got to. You know, sand down the corners of our uh, horror to make it more accessible. Certainly not include the porn that you suggest because that could possibly rule out <laughs> a wider audience. Okay, suit yourself. So let's work through this. Do you agree that Van Helsing's our sequel and do we set it in contemporary times or not? Why not? I mean, even if you had the same character, he's an, he's he's been wandering the earth for hundreds of years. He could have continued to wander right into the twenty. Uh, we're in the 21st or 2nd century now? Uh, we're in the 21st century. So Sorry, okay, good. this guy could be like Kane and Kung Fu, wandering the earth, or this could be like a horror version of Touched by an Angel where essentially Van Helsing wanders the earth, taking down, you know, various demons, vampires, etc., that, to- that are tormenting small American towns. Okay. Hey, Ben. Ben, what about this? What about this? What about we flip it a little bit and I am legend this, the book or like the theme of the book. What if it's about a team of monsters who get together to take down Van Helsing because over the last 800 years, Van Helsing has decimated the population of memorable uh, literary monsters and the last few monsters remaining form together in a kind of reverse... uh, uh, Wild Bunch, to kill Van Helsing. Oh, I like this. I like this. So this is good. One of the great little twists at the end of Will Smith's I Am Legend is that you find out at the end. Okay, Richard Matheson's novel I Am Legend, but. Oh, sorry. Go on. Sorry. I'm just trying to give an example that, you know, has box office appeal. Okay. The idea where you basically, you reveal as a twist that the, I guess the hunter 
is the villain and the hunted are the actually empathetic people more like us is great. It just, like a light switch, flicks things to visualise in an entirely different way. What if we start the film for the first half, we follow Van Helsing as the ostensible hero and then we do the, the reveal halfway through the movie, which is always a bit risky. It's always risky to do this, but we don't do it at the start or the very end as a twist. We do it halfway through. And perhaps they catch Van Helsing or he kills one of them. In fact, you know what? There's a template already. It's Thor Ragnarok where this happens. Or is it Captain Marvel? One of those movies. Captain Marvel. Cap- Captain Marvel. I haven't seen it, so you'll- Captain Marvel. So Captain Marvel, Ben Mendelsohn's alien, who is represented initially as like an alien terrorist, is revealed to actually be more like a Star Wars rebel or freedom fighter. That's That works for me. I like that. And so then what happens after that, Gabe? Well, I suppose uh, the monsters team up and let's uh, say they met out a thousand years of revenge against uh, Van Helsing. How about this? If we've got different monsters, so different species together, not just all vampires but a werewolf, etc. do we do a film where we basically just use up all our monsters at once and they come together as a diverse team like in a heist movie where you've got the vampire complemented by the werewolf, complemented by Frankenstein's monster, and the heist, so to speak, is the assassination of Van Helsing. Yeah, totally, totally. So how does it end? What is a satisfying ending? Do we have our monsters kill our human or do they come together and form an easy alliance to take on a bigger villain in the sequel? Yeah, sure. Like at the very end, I don't know, Cthulhu rises out of the ocean you know, and it's like, oh shit! Now we got to team up. Now, now a vampire and a werewolf and a human man will have to fight Cthulhu. So basically, Van Helsing is our Chris Evans. He doesn't have the same superhero powers as the other characters, but he's pretty good. He's good with a crossbow. Sure. What's our team up at the very end to bring it all home? Where we have this huge, sort of bigger baddie appear, which leads the sequel. Is it Dracula, Werewolf Man, or <laughs> Werewolf. the Wolf Man? Werewolf Man. Uh, is there a mummy? Do we have a mummy? Oh yeah, you could. I think now we could jam a mummy. In. I mean, basically, it's um, Monster Squad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and we need a title for our sequel to Van Helsing. I have to say, I would watch this movie. I think it's a great idea. I'd watch. I'd, I'd watch a movie where we, I am Legend, the Universal uh, Monsters. Look, this is the idea. These aren't just silly pictures. This is an opportunity to make some serious coin. Oh. So what's the title for our Van Helsing sequel? Um, hmm. Van Helsing, colon, still rising. Still rising. Van Helsing. Uh, and the monsters of the universe. Uh, Van Van Helsing, a song of sixpence. Van Hel, Van, Van, Van Hel's frozen over. Van... Monster Squad. Monster Squad. Still hunting. <laughs> Monster Squad 2. I don't know. I, I, I feel like the we got to go away and work on a title, but the pitch is strong. Okay. Let's go. For, a working title at the moment will have to be just Van Helsing, and we'll call it a reboot. And oh yeah, I think that's, that's how we make a sequel to <laughs> the Stephen Summers great idea, bad execution film, Van Helsing. Untitled Van Helsing sequel. <laughs> All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. 
A big thanks to our awesome sound editor and designer, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so incredible. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Twitter at Gabe Dowrick, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I would. Gabe's hilarious on the tweets. Lies. Check him out. I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thanks, folks, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as that helps uh, get people to discover and hopefully enjoy the antics that we uh, share each week. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>